middle of something that was just a tremendous uh, blessing. And the opportunity last night to, to speak at a youth rally that was over at Elkview Baptist. Um, what we saw there last night, let me tell you the most glorious heavenly picture of it. And I can't necessarily do it without reading the list. Uh, you all have known for a long time, at least for a decade that I've been here, that we have combated ferociously the idea that we are the only church. That we are the only church doing, doing Jesus' work. Like we have combated that. We have prayed for other churches. We have opened up the door for our church to host other churches to do services here, especially during the flood. Like we have done a lot of things to start to remove the chaos and the adversarial nature that has taken over so many churches. And it just, it especially felt thick in our area. And I had a lot of people kind of proclaim that to me. I felt it myself. And the idea that you and I are competing for something. We're competing for people. We're competing for resources. And so in that, we've been pushing back against that for a long time. Last night, I believe we saw one of the biggest pieces of fruit that has yielded in years. So Elfie Baptist hosted. Uh, Sand Run was a part of it. We had several people from Heritage there, not just me being asked to speak, but we had other people that were there volunteering. Mount Pleasant, Dunamis, Union Valley, Gospel, the Gospel Tabernacle, Reamer Gospel Tabernacle, Folding Rock Gospel Tabernacle. I can't say Tabernacle for some reason. Three Mile Wesleyan, Antioch, Grace Community, Riverview Gospel Tabernacle, uh, Charleston Mountain Mission, Lighthouse Worship Center, Faith Community Church, Valley Christian Assembly, Refuge Community, Mid-State Church of God, Shiloh, God's Lighthouse, House of Prayer, Elk River Ministry, Mount Tabor, and Shining Light. Yes. The Lord deserves a hand clap for that. The problems in our community are bigger than we can solve by ourselves. And the biggest church in our community can't solve them. Cross Lanes Baptist, one of the biggest churches in West Virginia, cannot solve one of their community's problems alone. Now, we can do a lot of good, and the people in here can get a lot of things done. But when you look at the community that we're living in and the issues that are there, what can you and I actually fix? How many people can we actually touch? How many disciples can we actually make? That was a huge blessing to be a part of that last night because for years listen God is not fighting for resources he will give Heritage Baptist the mission that he calls us to do whatever he calls us to do well as long as we are faithful to him he will provide the people and the resources to get it done all we have to do is be faithful Elkview may have different ministries Mount Pleasant, Sand Run Falling Rock we are not in competition. We serve the same Lord. We are brothers and sisters. And for far too long, people have destroyed that concept. We've lived in a world where I've seen it happen, where we will partake in conversations that make brothers and sisters of another church look bad or, 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 or put them in a, in a negative light so that we can make our church and our body better. And God hates Proverbs chapter 6 says there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven is an abomination to him. Number seven, he or she who sows discord among brothers. My heart was overjoyed to see that list. 
It's a sign of fruit that God is worthy. We did not see much at the altar last night, but the seeds were sown, and the, the rooting in churches getting together is going to pay far more fruit than you and I can even understand right now. The people of God have come together and showed up just to honor Jesus. wasn't one church pitch or one care of what youth ministry got the kids. There was none of that last night. It was King Jesus and people that have needs. Man, that is good news. That is good, good news. The problem is, I preached a pretty hard sermon to a bunch of teens that will probably never speak to me again. But I started it off with a promise that you all would have to hear it too. We would have to hear it too. You see, the, the concept of, the, of the, the youth rally was sharing Jesus together. We're going to get more done if we share them together. And I think that is a fantastic idea. It is absolutely true. I don't know how many Christian young people are at Hoover or Capitol or Elkview Middle School. But let me tell you this. If they find each other and they treat each other like brothers and sisters, the Lord will use that. They are the church there. So I told them last night, you have the displeasure of sitting in front of someone today that actually believes you have the mental faculties to take in the Word of God, and I'm going to preach it to you like I do my church. And then I had to follow it with, but they're going to hear it tomorrow. Finding the joy of sharing. The last couple songs this morning just hammered this. Just hammered this. We sing these songs, you all, and I've told you before, when you're singing, pay attention to the words. Sing them out of your heart, out of your soul. They become prayers, and sometimes they become lies. I'm grieved for the idea of how we share the Lord or how we don't. We need to be vocal. I've told you before, and, and even the teens can understand this concept. If you knew me for years and I never mentioned my wife or my children, you would think that person doesn't really care about his family. And would you be right or not to think that? We know each other for years, and I've never mentioned them. I've never talked about them good. I've never talked about interacting with them. I've never talked about our hardship. And you would just think, man, I, that person's obviously single. You ever been surprised when you found out somebody was married? That ought to be terrifying. Oh, wow, we've worked together for like four years. You're married? Okay, cool. It should be scary. If you take that and you send it up one level, how many people have known us for years and don't know that Jesus Christ is our living hope? We have one mission. It is the only mission. 60% of the people in the modern church don't even know what the mission is. You will know it. Hopefully you will have it memorized because we're going to read it a lot together every day I'm here into the future. Matthew 28. We're not going to read it every day. You know what I'm saying. Matthew 28. You will know it. It will be memorized. 
Jesus gives us the command. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And you say, What is the battle plan of the church? That's it. It's that simple, and it's that overarching. It touches everything that we do, from Awana to Good News Club to sending missionaries to Abro. All of those things fold under that message. It is that big that it takes everything in, but it is also that loose that it doesn't take a ministry to do it. You are called to do it. I am called to do it when I am not here. It's the battle plan. It's the mission statement. It's clear. The call is clear. It stops its execution. We had a great uh, time last night. I started off, and uh, what's hysterical, I had to borrow a $20 bill from a starving college student so I could give it to another starving college student because I didn't have my wallet. It was pretty good. But when I brought them forward, I said this. I said three things. Number one, you need to not freeze when I give you a microphone. Number two, you need to be motivated. Like this $20 needs to mean something, like maybe gas money, food money, Taco Bell, whatever. Number three, you and I can't know each other. Had one volunteer, finally. Young man stood up, walked up, handed him the microphone. I said, I'm going to give you a minute and 15 seconds. Talk about somebody that you respect, you love, you care about. Here or not here doesn't matter. Guy talked for about 70 seconds about his pawpaw. Makes perfect sense. You're halfway done to this 20 bucks, buddy. Are you ready? Here's phase two. What's my wife's name? What's she do for a living? Uh, mother. Half right. Is she even a mother? Probably. Right? This is my fear with the kids, and it's my fear with us. We don't have an intellectual problem sharing our faith. There's nothing wrong with your mental faculties. We don't have a motivational problem of sharing other things that we love. We're motivated to do it. One of the greatest experiences in the world is to have a good experience and then share it else. It's why you tell people when you go to a good restaurant. Does it make sense? How many of you have recommended something in the past week to someone else? A movie, a food, a product, anything. It's one of the greatest expressions. It is the follow-through of joy, and I can't remember who said it, but it is the, it is the final piece of worship is to recommend to have someone else want to enjoy it with you. So we don't have an intellectual problem, we don't have a motivational problem, and we really don't have a courage problem. Most of you all will talk, maybe not in a microphone, but you'll talk to someone else one-on-one. Lord, help us. Some of you have to, right? So you've got to be at least a little comfortable with it. We share spouse and children and good movies and good food and everything we love. It's the highest form of praise and worship, wanting to share them or it with others. It's what we do until we talk about the gospel, until we talk about Jesus. And my fear for those teenagers and my fear for us 
is that the goal is to know him and to make him known. And a lot of times we expect people to make him known first. And I think a lot of times our problem is we are just not familiar with him. Like that teenager that stood up there with me last night and talked for 75 minutes about his papa leading him to the Lord and teaching him scripture and loving him properly. He had no problem. But as soon as I ask him a question about someone that is unfamiliar to him, it looks like he doesn't know what he's doing, like he's not courageous and like he's not motivated. The problem was he was just ignorant of the subject matter. Friends, there is nothing wrong with you mentally. There is nothing wrong with the motivation. This is serious. And there is nothing wrong with your courage. When you have other good things in your life, it takes no courage to express them to someone else. And yet when we get to the idea of Jesus, you and I are scared. I think part of that is because he is unfamiliar to us. And I think the biggest piece of that is because you and I are unfamiliar. We've forgotten actually who we are. Smart enough, you're motivated, you're courageous. My question to us is who is he to us? Is he close? Is he glorious or not? Is he your living hope? Man, that last song, we couldn't have planned that any better. And we didn't. Is he your living hope or not? Is he mine? Does anybody outside of my church even know that? That's the mission. Because they're starving, and they're thirsty, and they're dead. And he is the only answer. It's the only mission. Everything else is is a side item. It's the baked potato to an awesome steak. What you do for a living, the home that you live, all, all these things are wonderful blessings. But the mission is not to grow those things. The mission is to know him and to make him known. Psalm 63 is going to be where we are in just a couple minutes. To know him and to make him known. Or is the name of Jesus just something flippant? You have to look at teenagers and say, is it just something that you use in order to get out of an awkward conversation? Somebody hounding you or frustrating you? Does your mom expect you to live or do a certain thing or be a certain way or your grandparents or whoever it is, a youth pastor? Is it just something flippant? Is it just a name that we roll off so that we can shut down that conversation? Because if he's not close and he's not glorious, then it's either that or a curse word. Just hit the relief valve on a hard conversation and be done with it. And just say the name and say you're a Christian and just walk away. Why? Because I'm tired of being hounded. I want you to see the contrast this morning of what it looks like. Psalm 63 is that piece. And listen, and and Sydney already told me she was laughing at me last night. You should have heard me stumbling through the King James Version that I agreed to read from. Right? Like I have no I have no problem with that being someone's favorite version. You should have heard me stumble through it. It had been a while since I had picked it up and started reading. The the ETH on everything, man, it threw me off about like tabernacle this morning. Like I am broken. My my brain is fried. 
So I went through it. I got a handle on it on the second or third passage, but the first one was a real butchering. So we're back in the ESV this morning, right? Just so that I can have a little less stress. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. Be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be the portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This psalm is written by David, the forgotten son, the youngest faithful and courageous shepherd, and the godly but flawed king. And at this time, he's running for his life. And in those moments, he is clinging only to God, and out of his mouth it cannot help but come forward. I will praise you. I will seek you. I will cling. It's early when he seeks the Lord. Why? Because it's the first thing on his list. When he wakes up in the morning, it is the very first thing that he knows that he needs. He needs God's provision for the day. He is thirsty, it is hot, and the world is hard. And he is thirsty, and he is longing. I think, like that idea of longing, listen, think about in, in the relationship of a good spouse or even a good friend and how you've missed those interactions, how you've missed time together, even to the point where sometimes even your body just aches. There's a weariness there and a brokenness there that, that someone else was able to, you just felt right, you just felt connected, you felt like everything was moving, and there's a longing right there. When is the last time you and I experienced that for the Lord? Why to see Him, to see His power and to see His glory, to lift up your hands and to sing His praises. Psalm 42 would also show this, right? A deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? How about Philippians chapter 3? The Apostle Paul basically makes that glorious passage where all the righteousness that he has done, he considers to be dung. Verses 7 to 11 in that passage say this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Old Testament, New Testament, saint under God, saint under Christ, the longings are the same. And he is letting go of everything else to make known the name of Christ. There's a longing there for something so good, for someone so good, that it it distorts and it makes small everything this world has to offer. It doesn't necessarily mean you and I are going to live like Paul. It doesn't mean that we're going to be in the wilderness like David. But the issues are still the same, even though those circumstances are harder for us because it's been a while since we've been desperate. You see, you need desperation to have faith like that. And I honestly don't think it's going to take a mental trick to create that in us. What I think it needs, what I think we need, is some reminders of who we are and who we were to create that kind of desperation. Because when you read those, the heart, there's desperation and dedication in those passages. The heart of those that know him, it just overflows with praise. It's an overflow of a grateful soul. And it's hard to be grateful if you don't remember the needs that have been provided for you. The things and the moments in life when if he didn't show up, you were done. If he didn't make a way, there was no way. What ultimately drives a testimony like that right now in my life, the knowledge and glory of a good and holy God are only seen properly as I look through the fog of my sin and my failures. And I have to unpack that statement for you because I had to write it three or four times. God's glory is God's glory. Okay? He does not change. He is no bigger, no smaller. He is absolute. My perspective of God's glory changes with how I see my sin. His grace gets bigger when my sin gets bigger. Does that make sense? That's why a saint that's lived for the Lord for 60 years will know at the end of their life, even though they loved Him and tried to honor Him, and even though they have become more like Christ, that's why when they know then that they are worse than they ever thought they were when they first got saved. Because the illumination of God's glory and God's grace is in proportion to how I see my brokenness. If I am evil and he loves me and he saved me, his grace is huge. But if I'm a decent person and all I needed was just a little bump over the finish line, Like when I stood before Jesus one day, like 95% of my life had really kind of got me there. And then Jesus just kind of put his foot on the scale and kind of gave me a little bump and knocked me into heaven. Is God's glory big or is God's glory small? Small. I did most of the heavy lifting myself. I was a good person, Lord. 
treated people with kindness, right? Even the ones that weren't nice to me. If my sin is big, His grace is big. But if my sin to me is small, His grace and His glory is small. And that's what I mean by that statement. God is glorious and He is perfect. But my perspective of that changes with the amount of sin I know is in my heart. In my heart, His glory and sinfulness grow together. More of one grows the other. When I see Him again afresh, I am reminded of my brokenness. And when I see my brokenness properly, His grace and glory gets bigger. I don't think we have to manufacture a tragedy in your life to put you and I on our knees in dedication and, and, and awe of this God. I think we need the reminder of who we are and who He is. And so this morning, that's my goal. When's the last time somebody looked at me and you and said, you are an absolute mess? Feels good, don't it? I mean, we come to therapy session this morning with the worst therapist ever. You are an absolute mess. But what if I looked at you in truth and said, you are a cherished man. You are loved beyond your wildest dreams. Our culture has been so big on the promotion of self or on the promotion of self-esteem that we have given people a false perspective of who they really are. We've built that into people thinking that they will get better if we teach them they are better. No, they get better when we teach them the truth and give them the tools Building my life around my three-year-old and telling him how wonderful he is or how great he is is eventually not going to pay dividends properly. It's going to give me a 10-year-old that is unruly and a 15-year-old that I can do nothing with and then an 18-year-old that, what do you do? But if I'm teaching that child and correcting that child and loving that child properly and showing them biblically that there is sin there but that they are loved and that though these attitudes are within them, the Holy Spirit now in them is going to sanctify that out of them. I'm giving them truth. I'm giving them a proper biblical message. You are a mess and you are cherished. I have failed people. I have sinned against God. I have betrayed people. When's the last time you took a look at your life and had an honest concept? I have been angry. I have been evil. I have been mean. I have been short, selfish, prideful. I am a mess. And God loves me. And Christ came as the ultimate picture of that love. You see, that is real truth, and that changes you and I for the better. If I hide all that stuff in some kind of self-help, or I hide all that stuff in some kind of deflection, why, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. 
right? We never want to compare to somebody that we know is better than us, kinder than us, more gracious than us. We never want to compare that way. I'm not as bad as Hitler or Mussolini or my neighbor that's a jerk. I'm not as bad as those people. If I hide who I really am from the truth of God's word and the truth of God's worldview, I have set myself up for failure. And I think you and I need the reminder, not about how messed up the guy at work is or the girl at work or anyone else in your life. You and I need the reminder that we're a mess. And the Lord saved us. He cleaned you up found you right where you are in whatever ditch you had created whether you were 10 or 50 he wasn't scared of your mess Isaiah says that all of our righteousness is like what filthy rags you read enough scripture you see some things in there I I gave them two to the teens last night and I didn't really want to explain them because we had some young ones there last night but First off, like Paul counts his whole life as poop. All of it. He had some really awesome accomplishments too. And then the Old Testament prophet would look at you and I and say, all of your righteousness is a tampon, a filthy rag. And you walk into God's holy chamber with that amount of uncleanness and say, here's the best I got to offer. You and I are in trouble. Our righteousness is like filthy rags, but you know what Psalm 17 says? As God's children, we are the apple of His eye. You're a mess, but you're cherished. God loves you. And he'll take you right where you are. And he will make you throughout the processes of life. Some of them loving, tender, and kind. And some of them corrective and still kind, but corrective and painful. And he will make you through stages more like Jesus. He does not leave us where we're at. And he does not excuse our known open rebellion. Don't make light of the grace and the mercy of God by living in known open rebellion against what God claims is right or wrong. There is grace in ignorance, and I am so very thankful for that. When I got saved as a 10-year-old, the Lord didn't open my mind and my heart to all the ways I had dishonored Him or all the things I needed to change. He walked with me slowly. At 10 or 50, it would kill us to have that illumination happen. All that we had done to dishonor him and all the things that we're going to have to change so that we could be more like him, you or I would not be able to stand after that moment. There is grace in ignorance, and Jesus' death on that cross covers all of those things. That is amazing. That is amazing. That is enough to drive you and I to our knees right now and say thank you that my ignorance, my my sinful uh, uh, deeds and thoughts and actions done in ignorance are covered by the blood of Christ. Why? Because if not, I would spend every day, all day, repenting of something else. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He is good. He is righteous. Isaiah says that We are like scarlet, but we are going to be made white and clean 
Your sins have made you as scarlet, but you are made white and clean. First John 1 John 1.9, if we are... If we repent, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All. That applies... Listen, I... I don't say this out loud flippantly. That applies to the serial killer just like it applies to me when I was 10. God's grace is that big. When you and I take opportunities to lay burdens on ourselves and guilt on ourselves or guilt on someone else, we make small the cross of Jesus Christ. All sin was covered. Every sinner that ever repents and whatever they did was covered. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How about this one? You are frail but immensely powerful. I think part of what's made the last two years in our country so hard for most of us is we were given this realization all at once and trying to catch up with the idea that we are really, really frail. And your body might be healthy and tomorrow you might be sick. And that was a lesson you and I are all learning together. And we had to learn it in, in hyper speed. And I think that's what's really thrown most of us for such a loop. The idea of being 85 and, and having a retirement and knowing your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, it was kind of just flushed away almost immediately. Why? Because there was terror that life is actually frail. Something I don't see, can't smell, whatever. Something may hurt me. And, you know, honestly, you all, for the first time in human history, the last couple generations in our country are really the only people that have ever kind of had that idea. I need you to understand, everybody else before us, World War II, Vietnam, even some ideas in the Cold War, had people thinking about their mortality constantly. Before that, it would have been, if the crops didn't come in, you were done. If the warlord next door was upset... Hey, my goodness gracious, people, in Mexico right now, if the drug lords are unhappy, everybody is in trouble. And God help us in some of the inner cities in our country. Just Google Chicago News every Monday. And the first thing you're going to see, shootings and murders weekly. You are frail. You are really frail. You are severely limited, but you are beyond powerful. As a child of God, you have access to the God of the universe, not just as glorious king, from servant to king, but as heavenly father, child to father. You have that access. I have that access. We're not slaves. Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. And then later on, we would be called Children, and then even greater than that, Ephesians would call us the bride of Christ. Now, some people's experiences have harmed that analogy, but let me tell you this you talk to someone that has a good husband. I mean, I'm an alpha, loving, kind, like Justin, loving, kind. They have it put together. They're selfless. You talk to someone that has a husband that looks like Jesus and let them tell you what kind of relationship that is. 
And no matter how good it is, it's still broken because they're still a sinner. You and I are called the bride of Christ. You have access to God. And you know what? We're also called the temple. He's living in you. The Holy Spirit living in you right now. That is the kind of access you have. The bookends of the mission start with all authority, right? Jesus' great commission. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I will never leave you. We miss those in the great commission. We go right to go, preach, teach, baptize. Part of the mission is who is sending you and who is fulfilling it. The one that has the authority is with me every day. I will never leave you. That is the access. You are frail, but you are the plan. God in his divine wisdom has set the church here to spread the message, to be, uh, even in certain elements, the firstborn like the Old Testament. You and I, we talked about it this morning, even in the Baptist faith and message, it says that we have a debtorship to the world to be who we say we are. We owe them a debt, and that debt is to live like Christians. And Jesus Christ is our living hope. We owe them that. Why? So that we can see other people be born into The mission is universal. The equipping is sacred. It is secured. The outcome is promised. And the standard, there is only one standard. It's faithfulness. You're not required to work up an outcome. When you and I think we can work up an outcome, if we just pitch it a little better, if we just tell the story a little bit better, we will be tempted to change some things to make it palpable. Like, Well, I'm not going to tell a sinner... And God is righteous and they are not, but I will say that God loves them. Or I will just, I'll let them know that if they come to Jesus, their life will get better. Some of you in here this morning would say, that is partially true. I come to Christ, I got more accountability. I got a a world that opened up about things that were going to hurt, I was going to voluntarily do, and I was going to sacrifice, I'm going to love people. And instead of being selfish, I was going to look like Jesus, which ultimately led him to the cross. So some of us will say, my life did get better, but boy, it sure got harder. And those things aren't mutually exclusive. standard is faithfulness. Just be faithful where you are. See, you and I, we are scared. We are unfamiliar with Christ. And so because of that, we are worried about talking with him. And what we need to uh, build back that familiarity is to start with who we are. I can't believe that a God this good loves me. And I can't believe that he put me on mission. And I can't believe that he promised the outcome already. And I can't believe that Jesus said he would build his church, but I know he told me I got to help. I got to be a part of that. How about this one? You are scarred, but you're healed. You're broken, but unstoppable. And on some days it doesn't feel like that, but you absolutely are. You are on the team that is victorious. Your mission is is universal. No matter where you go, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, those that speak hillbilly like us and those that don't, you are there on mission. Your equipping is secured. God is going to give you what you need. 
Victory is assured. Psalm 103 says this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast, steadfast love toward us, uh, toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are but dust. God understands our frailty. And he's going to use you in spite of it. Say, man, I'm physically hurting. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm emotionally hurting. I'm mentally taxed. All these things are well within his godly arms of he understands what you need. Not only to grow in him, but to be of service for him. You're scarred. Life has hurt. People have hurt you. But there is healing in him. He understands we are but dust. And so we need the reminder, you all. We need the reminder of who am I? Who am I? If I lose track of that, I will lose track of God's glory, God's grace, and his goodness. If I feel like I'm okay or I'm half okay, then I've halved the amount of grace and halved the amount of glory that God's going to get. Why? Because I did half of it myself. I was just a decent person. Which is why we're not thinking about someone else right now. We should be thinking about ourselves. Would an honest assessment of who I am not make me more like David in Psalm 63? If I remembered how much of a mess, how frail I was, how broken I was, how desperate and needy I was, would I not be more like him? Could I just not help but tell the story of how good that God is that loves me? It would be a lot easier if you and I were just a little bit more familiar with him and his goodness. Every time you were bumped, it would just come out like a cup that's full to the brim. There's kids running around here all the time. How, feel, how full do they fill a cup? Somebody say all the way to the top. You know how the liquid kind of hangs on to itself as the top and like it's just like one more drop and it's going to overflow, but you can see it over top of the cup. That's how far they fill one. What happens when you bump that cup? Whatever's in it comes out. You and I should be like that. When we get bumped, friction comes in. What should come out is what's in the cup. The world should be blessed like you and I under a spigot. What happens when you turn that thing on and again, they just keep it going and going and going. So what eventually runs out of the cup is whatever's going in it. That should be us too. My overflow from God filling me is watering the world. Those that are thirsty, those that are hungry, those that are needy are being fed and loved and cared for. Why? My cup is overflowing. And then if they bump me, it just comes out. Would I not be desperate, dedicated, and would I not be longing to dialogue, longing to share? Who is this Jesus? We know who we are now. Who is this Jesus? In the beginning was the Word, John chapter 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life that was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all leave through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light, the true light 
which gives people light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. You know who you are. Nobody knows you better than you. You know who you are. That glorious one came that you may have life and be life, that you may know him and make him known. The Lamb of God, the Word of God, creator and light, maker, life giver, and glory of God. He is the one that has come. We've run, uh, we've read through Revelation chapter 5 many, many times at our church. We've done it from the pulpit so many times because it's just a wonderful, amazing passage. And who is he in that passage? He is the one worthy to open the scroll. John sees there is the book of life, the scroll of life. Without it being opened, we are all destined for hell. And he sobs and he weeps because he sees everyone. You're there and I'm there. And he looks around and there is no one worthy to open that scroll. And he starts to cry. And an angel grabs him and says, fear not, there is one that is worthy. And here he comes now, a lamb that was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what does Jesus do? He takes possession as the one worthy. I'm not going to read that passage to you again. Instead, my mind went to this one, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse's. From their mouths come a sharp sword. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's the scariest part. I saw an angel, angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains. It's the piece that breaks my heart. You and I should be standing on that side. If not for the grace of God, we would be in the wine press of his fury. We have forgotten that. We have dishonored the world by forgetting that. His wrath should be poured out on me. Instead of being on one of those white horses behind him, I should be in front of him. And we have forgotten that. 
And when we forget that, we've lost track of His glory and His grace and His goodness. And we've dishonored Him. We've dishonored the world because we've not lived with a grateful heart and a thankful heart. We read that passage and you and I think, man, I'm behind Him. But you should be in front of Him. And whatever the word he says that comes out of his mouth, whatever sword that he says, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was just his name. That name that nobody knows. I wouldn't be surprised in all of his authority and all of his glory if all he did was speak his name. Come and eat the flesh of kings. Come and eat the flesh of captains. Come and eat those that thought they could stand against me. My heart is broken for the idea that it should have been me standing there. If you and I will stop forgetting that fact, your life tomorrow will be different. So will mine. I have to stand in a group filled with teenagers and push them to share the gospel. I have to share the same message with you. The name of Jesus should be on our lips. And whatever it costs us to say it, It'll be worth it. They come this morning to play. Find the joy in sharing. Find the joy in sharing. And you're going to have to find it in your own brokenness. You're going to have to find it in your own sinful life that Jesus saved you from or that he can save you from. The heaviest burden in the world is guilt. And he can pull that right off of you. That kind of forgiveness, that kind of love, that kind of care. But listen, friends, you and I need to remember, if not for the grace of God, we're not riding behind him watching this play out. We're standing in front of him, drawing swords or drawing weapons on the one that just speaks. And as he speaks, he creates in Genesis. And as he speaks in Revelation, he punishes and judges you and I should have been standing there in the valley of Megiddo waging war against God and having our lives ruined and wrecked by the word of the one that is worthy and instead we're riding on a white horse behind him just lifting his name up getting ready for heaven, for peace evermore, never to feel a struggle or pain again, never to feel any of that. Our sins have been washed away. All the fun, all the joy, all the food, no sleep, all of the goodness that you could ever imagine is then. Right now, it's time to work. Right now, it's time to pay your debt to the world. The rest of the day, the rest of this week, you live like it means something and learn to say the name of Jesus like he is your living hope. The world needs it. If you need something this morning, you come and pray.